What if we built schools that help kids find their passion, tackle hard problems, and change their communities for the better? Welcome to Think Schools with Alex Hernandez, a podcast about the amazing things going on in public education. Today, we have Nathan Pei Schmidt and Wisdom Amuzu, co-founders of the Hadanu Collective. Hadanu Collective, or HNC, is a Colorado nonprofit that is serious about kids taking charge of their learning. Today, their students are designing smart food pantries, working with the visually impaired in India, and using the power of the pen to bring positive social change. They are fresh off winning the 2017 Teach for America Social Innovation Award, where one judge called their venture a big idea to create a radically different kind of school. I met Nathan six years ago at a design thinking workshop and have watched him and Wisdom bring this idea to life. Here is co-founder Wisdom Amuzu introducing the organization. How to New Collective, or HNC for short, is an education nonprofit, and we're trying to lead the way in something called authentic education. One of the best stories we have that illustrates this is Anahi. Anahi shows up at our first center, Hack School. She wants to design a smart cane for the blind. That's her issue that she wants to work on. So she has the help of an educator, she has the help of industry experts, and she actually builds a prototype. The prototype works. And she ends up at the White House twice. And she's nominated as one of Obama's 11 kids science advisors. Hack School is just one of our centers. There, the focus is STEM. We have a second center called Street Knowledge. The focus is literacy, social activism. Our third center is called Mundo. And now the focus is in the environment. Our fourth center is on arts and music. And the fifth center is on wellness. Most people wonder, what is a center? A center is basically students educators and industry experts all collaborating to solve a real-world problem. So this fall, we'll be running five centers across the Denver metro area, and we'll be impacting 120 students. So Nathan, it's almost trite to say, hey kid, go find your passion. But how do news built around this? What does this look like in your centers? It's not that some kids are motivated and some kids are. It's not that some kids are passionate and some kids are. It's that they're coming in at different places. And if you don't view your role as an educator as I need to meet them where they're at, even if that is I hate school and like whatever it is, your role is still to help them find the passion and the, and the drive and all of that. Alondra, she came in and she was there because she had nothing to do after school, which is when hack school was at the time. And she was like, I don't really want to be here, but I'm coming voluntarily still. It's kind of this weird situation. And she was essentially like, I'm not really interested in anything. I don't really want to create something that I'm not interested in. And so with that, it took one, just talking a lot with her over the course of a couple of days, just straight up building a relationship. The second thing was her being able to see people around her who were passionate about what they were doing and seeing the excitement of them working on what they were working on. And then me being able to say like, well, you don't have to be passionate about anything, like giving her permission to not be excited or passionate. But what if we just look at a bunch of project ideas and you tell me which ones you think are not shitty? Um, And so she went through and she was like, oh, these ones, they're not great, but they're kind of okay. And so like, again, this is high school, so nothing's really cool. I said, I bet if you built this thing, you were a little bit interested in, I bet you'd get more interested in it. And she's like, well, okay, I'll do that. It wasn't me forcing her. It's still up to you if you do it or not. She's like, yeah, I guess, well, I guess I could do that. So we sat together for about five minutes and ordered the parts. It came. She built this little robot, which had nothing to do with helping the community. But she was like, oh, I now understand the principles of electricity and circuits and how code interfaces with blah, blah, blah. And then her second project that she worked on was a free food pantry that's helping to feed uh, North Denver. And so it kind of evolved from there. 
You also talk about helping kids solve real world problems, but that's easier said than done. How do you guys do that? So Gabby, she is a sophomore and she had this idea that if I have an anatomical heart, a model of an anatomical heart, and I put braille on the heart for structure and function, a visually impaired student will be able to more deeply and more quickly learn about that heart than if she were reading it through a textbook. She's currently designing models for students in India. About 450 students are right now using her models. That's led to a person who runs 90% of the visually impaired centers in all of Scandinavia in conversation now with her about actually buying and distributing her models throughout the region. So we're about six to eight months away probably from our first Hack School Student Incorporated LLC. And what is a teacher doing to help Gabby? As she was working on designing the models, as the adult who has the social capital and can bring in connections, I was having conversations with pretty much everyone who would potentially be interested, which is actually only like three people, so it's not that much work. It turns out one of them was like, well, let me talk to Gabby. Great. Here's her email. He sent her an email. We talked a little bit about how to respond. The key for her was don't get bogged down in like the complexity of like negotiating. Allow her to experience the excitement from like, oh, someone wants to buy and distribute my stuff, but still give her the freedom to be able to do the creative work that she is doing. When you and Wisdom are around high school kids, it seems like stuff like this happens. And Wisdom's like, oh, I'm not going to take any credit. Yeah, they're showing agency. But something's happening here. And you guys can't work with all the students in all the centers. How are you training people to create this space where students find their passions? We don't train them to do it. We find those who are currently doing it, and we help them build what they really want to build. For example, Olivia at Manual... We didn't train her in anything. She and the students were doing amazing things. Wisdom started talking to her and working together a little bit. The conversation was like, well, what if we could provide you with the freedom and the resources you need to really do what you're trying to do? Because on a public school budget, it's hard to really do what you want to do. I think a big part of it from the educator side is, one, the educator needs to be, I hate this word, but very entrepreneurial. Um, Yes. And two, they need to be able to transfer that to students. Yeah, the bit about you need to be entrepreneurial. I thought about the last two conversations I've had in trying to, people who are interested in coming and join us. One person asked me, can you tell me what kind of support I would have? And I was very straight up with her because I can't afford not to be. I said, you're coming to a startup. We're actually looking for folks who are entrepreneurs, who have a vision and want to build something. That's who we have to attract. And now I'm thinking about, okay, what would that mean five years from now? We constantly need a culture where people are building things. We want to bring people onto the team who, by doing their own life's work, are furthering HNC's vision. Um, So we don't want to convince them to, like, jump on the bandwagon and do all that. If you just continue doing what you're doing and you have more resources and freedom, if your trajectory is pushing towards the vision that we have, that's who we want. And you've spent a lot of your career trying to activate students. I mean, I think you led a few marches out of school with your kids. (laughs) (laughs) Tell us about activating kids in high school. Is it high school or middle school? That that was middle school. Man, let's go there. You want to go there? Let's go there. Okay. For me, one of my favorite, favorite moments. The second year I went into the classroom, I was teaching 12 minutes away from where I went to middle school myself. This mattered more than me keeping a job here. One day students walked into class and I was trying to teach them about transformative resistance. Uh, So resistance that is actually targeted towards a system and not just self-defeating or reactionary. So basically the kids walked in and I asked them to name four things that just made them extremely angry about their school. All middle school kids will share the same. Sure, we can all guess them. 
uniforms was the number one thing. It's very unfair. But they also brought out real things like actually unfair discipline practices. As a teacher, I can tell you we aren't perfect all the time. Of course that was happening. Um, so I asked them, all right, what are you willing to do about it? And most of them said, I'm willing to walk out right now. And for some reason, students always go to walking out. And we applaud them, but we actually need to challenge them to take even much more transformative actions than just walking out of a building. Anyway, they chose walking out. So first period, I said, all right, if you get up and walk out, let me tell you what will happen. As an agent of the system, your teacher, your black teacher who's from the community, I'm still an agent from this, of the system, I'm going to first give you a demerit and then most likely going to escalate, escalate to sending you out of class. And then I'm going to have to call an administrator. If you keep going, there's potential threats of suspension. If you keep going, we'll actually have to call the police because it's illegal for you to just walk out of here and you might potentially get arrested. First period, about half the class stands up. As, as soon as I start mentioning the consequences, they all sit down. Nobody walks out. Second period, same thing. Half the class gets up, they sit down, four head to the door to make a joke, and then they go back to their seat. As the day goes, you know, kids, they start caring less. Sixth period, half the classroom gets up, four get to the door, and then those four actually walk out of the classroom. And, you know, I was trying to teach them this lesson, thought I was cool. That's when I actually freaked out because, you know, I was, already, <laughs> I was already losing my job then. So they get to the door, and I'll never forget this moment, and neither will they. And to me, this was six months before the actual walkout. They get to the door... <laughs> And our assistant principal, late 20s, white woman, and there's about two black female students and two Latino students. Here's all that she says. Scholars, can you please go back to your classroom? Without even any ounce of resistance, they all turn around and head straight back to the classroom. And what was key was the reflection. A, they weren't actually ready to take any kind of transformative action. They think that change just happens when you get angry they don't understand that you actually need to organize, right? B, they weren't fighting about something they truly cared about. They didn't truly care about the other uniforms. It sucked, but it wasn't like so crushingly awful, right? They didn't have the resolve for it. Uh, and then third, they actually lacked the tools. What are the tools? What do you need so that next time you're actually prepared? And what does that look like? And I didn't even try eighth period because we know what happens eighth period. They're going to walk out. We're definitely going to have to call the cops. Uniforms are enough of a reason. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, but for me, what's key, though, is have I, as a teacher, and I hadn't at that time, have I actually equipped them to be able to organize themselves, yeah, beyond me, the adult in the classroom? And then what does it look like to set up a space where the students are actually doing that work and developing those skills? Because that's what it's going to take, not adults holding their hands throughout their entire educational career. It was a good catch-22 of, okay, you failed, but actually, I also failed as the adult in the classroom. Because up until that moment, I was just centering myself. I was just centering, I wasn't centering the kids. So it was, it was transformative for both of us. You fast forward six months, and you have one student along with her parent, because they learned that it helps to have parent power on our side. They organize a student-led walkout. And this was at a time when police brutality was really spiking. The Black Lives Matter movement was just starting up, um, and the youth side of things was just starting up. They wanted to organize something. And what was amazing is they had examples they could use, right? There was a point when they had to negotiate with the admin. Well, they had read examples of that. They read about the Chicano walkouts in California. Uh, there was a moment when there was a, they were asked to make a concession. They were asked to make a sit-in at the school instead of a walkout. Kids, of course, said, hell no, we're not going to do that. <laughs> but when I was on the phone, I heard them negotiate, right? Once again, how do you actually learn to advocate for yourself? And for me, it was cool to point to concrete moments in the classroom that actually led to that. For me, it was the most beautiful moment 
of education. It was realized. It wasn't just this, it wasn't just a packet that turned in. What people didn't see, if you walked into our classroom, most of the time, you would just see students reading, speaking, listening, and writing. It was a literacy classroom, but it was grounded in reality. It was driven by students, and it did develop their agency. So when they walked out, it was a beautiful moment. When they took it a step further, because we have to keep critiquing them, keep pushing your transformative resistance, walking out doesn't get you anything. And they learned that. They were excited, but they were also like, now what? Yes, now what? Okay, let's bring in the district commander. Let's bring in a firefighter. Let's bring in the deputy city attorney of Denver. Speak truth to power then. Okay, let's do research. Let's interview police officers in our community. Let's interview a forensic social worker. And then let's actually host a student-led debate arguing both sides of what they chose was body cameras. Th that's scholarly work. I keep hearing you guys say two things. One yeah. is helping students find their power. And two, somehow you need this different kind of space. What are the spaces that you guys are trying to create in your center? So we're opening a center at Manuel High School. There's sort of a moment that draws everyone together, right? So for those students at Manuel, they got a chance to pitch for $10,000. And once they won that grant, what those students wanted to do was start a writing center. And I won't lie to you. I don't understand why they're so passionate about writing. And I like writing. <laughs> I actually do like writing. But these kids, this is their mission. They want to use writing to empower students to become agents of social change. In most of their literacy classes, they felt so disconnected from the curriculum. And kids are talking like this. It sounds like an adult, but I can show you their proposal for the writing conference they presented at. So what did they start doing? Well, first, they use you know traumatic events to draw the community together. And for our community... It was the election. And what these kids chose to do was organize an event that, A, would allow students, adults, and community members to come together to write, as well as have a moment to heal. So they have a writing workshop, and I showed up. So it was the students inviting me to this, right? It wasn't me creating something. Folks had the opportunity to write poems, to write essays, to write duos together. And I saw community members there, right? I saw families there, and I saw students there. As the African in the room, let me share a quick proverb. A stick may smoke, but it will never burn. You need more than just one stick to actually create a fire. I really want to shout out one of the best teachers that we were lucky to work with, Olivia Jones. She has an uncanny ability to actually create a space where students take responsibility, not just for their education, but for other students' education. Um, and I'll never forget the moment when I was interviewing them at the end of the school year. And one of the students was talking about, you know, we created something amazing here. And for me, it's sad how much it's taken to get others um, to believe in this. And I said, well, why? She said, have you seen our data? And they had just collected their peers' literacy data. And they had just seen how those students that they worked with, how much extra they had grown on this standardized test. And for them, their work isn't grounded in that, but they know that they need the data to support their center. So now you're talking to a high school senior who's about to graduate. And what she shared was, next year, I can't wait to see what that data looks like. Students are really stepping up and taking power. They're taking ownership. And there's key points where you guys are pushing it. Gabby had this great idea for organs that had Braille on them. And you kind of inserted yourself, Nathan, to say, I'm going to find the three people in the world who care about this and tee them up so they can have a conversation. What are the most important things you do as an adult? Because it's so easy to disempower kids. What are the most important things you guys are doing that leads to more power for kids, not less? I think one really important thing is as adults, we can see the path ahead. The students might not be able to see. And so we can see where the sticking points are going to be along their trajectory and be able to jump ahead 
and kind of release the tension on that sticking point so that by the time they get there, it's not solved for them, but they can at least have a shot at solving it themselves. On the flip side, we also put them in a situation to fail horrifically. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because students say lots of lofty things that don't mean anything. The first time I read Agents of Social Change, I was like, oh, great. What are you actually going to do about it? This student, you know, we try to get them out in the community as much as possible. So she's at the Capitol. They're trying to advocate for some policy. And she has an interaction with someone who's entirely different. She's a black female student. She's looking at an adult who's a congressman, uh, somewhere between 50 and 60, with a cowboy hat. And it's a white man. And she's processing those experiences. She was trying to speak truth to power. She processed all types of things that happened in that interaction. Straight up did. She did fail, right? She got incredibly scared for some reason, probably scared. And for us, that was a key moment because we don't want to shelter her from that. We want to say, okay, that's actually reality. Welcome to reality. Now what are you going to do about it? But real talk, how long are you going to let kids fail for? So you know, I've got 10-year-old twin boys, and they get stuck on something. And after about 10 minutes of it, it's excruciating for me. Mm. And then I think, oh, I need to value failure. Then I steal myself, and maybe I'll let it go a day. Mm. What's the longest you guys have ever let a kid fail? And well, was it productive? You don't actually want a culture of error. You want a culture of overcoming error or yes. overcoming failure. Um, and so it's not like fetishizing of failure. It's mm. the fact that that needs to happen so that you have something to work with to be able to get over that kind of a failure or that kind of an error. Then that's one of the sticking points where you jump in and say, oh, let's process how it is that you avoid this in the future. Okay, try it again. All right, moving on. All right, I'm going to ask my question again. How long have you let a kid struggle when your center is with a really hard problem? Okay, uh, three months. So Carlos uh, is working on this GPS. I hope he hears that. I'm going to send it to him. Uh, Carlos is working on this GPS backpack where he wanted to be able to text the backpack um, and have it tell him where it was at in case someone stole it or he lost it. Or actually, it was for like safety in the wilderness. And so he spent a good three months on about 10 lines of code trying to figure out what the problem in the code was. That process where from one perspective, you could look at it as three months of failure um, and then just like failing over and over again. He was actually exhausting every possible situation in which you could potentially fail. Um, and so there was like a massive amount of learning along this broad swath of content um, where he was actually learning lessons that you would teach to an entire class of 25 students through each of the time. Because he wasn't failing in the same way every time. It was like, oh, let's try this. Oh, didn't work because blah, blah, blah. I was thinking about the problem wrong. So let me try to think about it this way. That didn't work because I didn't take this into account, etc. So at the end of three months, was there joy? Was there relief? There exhaustion? Was what, what? Like elation, what? I would say. <laughs> when we finally texted the backpack and it texted back its GPS coordinates, Carlos is very much like me in that he sounds unenthusiastic all of the time. The most that I have ever seen him just celebrate was at that moment when he was like, wow, like that's his that's celebration for him. That's fine. That's what it is for me, too. But it was a pretty amazing moment for him. Our schools aren't structured to let kids wrestle with a problem for three months at a time or not even necessarily to feel the elation of banging your head against the same problem over and over again. That's really, really hard and feeling the joy of coming out on the other side of that. How did you get to the point where you thought this is the right thing for us to do at How to New? I definitely don't fault schools for that. And I also think 
that's part of why we're approaching it through centers is that the schools can effectively underwrite the accountability for us so that we can figure these things out and then be able to tie data to it on a longer time frame than the schools can afford to do. Um, so we can essentially, through our centers, do this kind of innovative work. And then because we highly value data and tracking, be able to show, by the way, these are the academic outcomes, and then give schools and school leaders the data they need to justify fully funding positions like this. On a daily basis, as you look at your centers, what data are teachers collecting, are students looking at that's helping to move the work forward? There's some really interesting stuff with a company called Scoutable, everyone should check out if they haven't, around social emotional measurement that is not self-reporting or rubric based, but it's actually digitizing human behavior and measuring it in a standardized way, which is an order of magnitude more valid than other approaches. And then there's the, the stuff that I think often overlooked, the students' subjective thoughts around the work they're doing. At Hack School, one of the things that they do is there's like a board and they'll put an emoji for how they're feeling that day. Here's how confident I'm feeling. On the educator side, uh, we'll kind of rank the students on, here's how close they are to despair. So that helps us get a sense for who is it that's going to need a little bit more individualized attention today versus who do we not even necessarily need to talk to all day. And once they go below a certain threshold, okay, mission critical, work with these students on these particular things. And that kind of helps balance and, and, and make it not just a one-on-one -on -one thing, but be able to like do it with more students. So this is actually a lot of the work that's happening over the next two years, and that is being able to track the Common Core and National Science Standards through the work that's being done on the authentic project levels that the students are working at without depreciating that authenticity. Schools are complicated. There's a million other things to worry about. Why do you feel the need to start a school? You can kind of think of it as these huge blocks of birds, thousands of birds kind of all moving as one unit. It's all these little individual forces just moving as one. And so what we're effectively trying to do is pick the three birds in that flock that will, because of their movement, shift the entire rest of the flock. For us, that's like centers being able to empower schools who are kind of in a traditional setting to be able to start growing this kind of educating. Another one of those birds in the flock is actually creating schools that can do this kind of, the entire school can do this. And then the third is make this both scalable and also kind of democratize it so people don't have to just reinvent the wheel every single time, which is through the, the tech platform we're using. If you could write the story of how to new 10 years from now, what would that story say? The manual student hosted an event for their book release. I saw one of my students that I taught in seventh grade. In seventh grade, I need to tell you, this kid on the third to last week of school, in front of like my entire fourth period class, this kid actually broke Brother Muzu down. And I just started crying just very real tears. I'm worried that in four years, I'm going to be attending your funeral. There's this moment when, you know, I got his autograph because he was one of the authors in their book. And I won't even lie to you, I struggled to imagine that future. I can't explain to you what it meant for him to be standing up there reading his story. And it was a big community event. In seventh grade, he was not that kid. He was not a leader in our school. And he was headed towards a very dangerous path. And this isn't one of those rags to riches story or kid from the ghetto who makes it. It's just straight up beautiful. It's just, for me, the best part of it was if you asked him what happened, he would say, I did this. He wouldn't say someone did it for me. You know, he wouldn't say, well, I showed up to this program and it saved my life. No, he came to this moment where he realized he needed to make better decisions for him and his family. For me, success is that boy saying, 
I actually did this. It was the first time I actually saw him really activate his humanity. So when I picture 10 years, I'm like, wow, there's going to be lots more moments like this. What are we going to be able to do with a hundred of those stories even? Do I actually think we can transform the system? I'm going to steal from Brother Cornell West. It says, I don't believe in optimism. I don't believe in pessimism. I believe in hope. Optimism looks at a situation and sees whether it allows us to infer if we can do X or Y. Hope says, I don't give a damn. I'm going to do it anyway. That's the only thing fueling this vision, this dream that Nathan and I have, that our students have, that Olivia has. It's hope. I'm inspired. I know other people are inspired by the work you guys are doing. If I want to get involved in How to New Collective, what can I do? First up, join us. You can stop by Center, work with our students. We need industry partners. Fund us. There's lots of avenues. Email one of us. Nathan at hncollective.org and wisdom at hncollective.org. Thanks to Nate and Wisdom for joining us today and congrats on the big award. We're wishing you a ton of success for the new centers and the new school. Thanks for listening and hasta luego, good people.